From Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles, this is your Brad Test. As heard on 90.7 FM in LA, 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Oregon Central Coast, 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 88.5 KAKU, the voice of Maui, and coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, on Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and of course, Radio Sputnik, five days a week. This is your Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today. As previously planned and promised, we will be joined shortly by Salon's Heather Digby-Parton and 2012 GOP presidential candidate Fred Carger for our coverage of the Democratic presidential debate that took place in Iowa on Saturday. But first, moments after we went off the air on Friday, Paris was struck by multiple terrorist attacks that left at least 130 dead and many more wounded and still fighting for their lives today. On Sunday, France responded reportedly by carrying out a massive bombing campaign in Raqqa, Syria, targeting ISIS, ISIL, Daesh, or the Islamic State, whatever you prefer to call them. Uh, after the group of radical Sunni Muslims claimed responsibility for the horrific attack in Paris late on Friday. In the wake of that attack, just hours after the news broke, anti-war activist and author David Swanson, who has appeared on this show many times, uh, we've often described him as the conscience of the broadcast. he published a short piece in response to the tragedy and while I'm sure we'll have uh, much more to say about all of this in the coming days, here's what David Swanson wrote in his piece titled Non-French War Deaths Matter. We are all France, apparently, though we are never all Lebanon or Syria or Iraq for some reason, or a long, long list of additional places. We are led to believe that U.S. wars are not tolerated and cheered because of the color or culture of the people being bombed and occupied. But let a relatively tiny number of people be murdered in a white Christian Western European land with a pro-war government and suddenly sympathy is the order of the day. This is not just an attack on French people. It is an attack on human decency and all things that we hold dear, says U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham. I'm not sure I hold all the same things dear as the senator, but for the most part I think he's exactly right, and that sympathy damn well ought to be the order of the day following a horrific mass killing in France. I just think the same should apply to everywhere else on the earth as well. The majority of deaths in all recent wars are civilian. The majority of civilians are not hard to sympathize with once superficial barriers are overcome, Yet the U.S. media never seems to declare deaths in Yemen or Pakistan or Palestine to be attacks on our common humanity. I included 
quote, pro-war government as a qualification above because I can recall a time way back in 2003 when I was the one shouting, quote, we are all France. And pro-war advocates in the United States were demonizing France for its refusal to support a looming and guaranteed to be catastrophic and counterproductive U.S. war. France sympathized with U.S. deaths on 9-11, but counseled sanity, decency, and honesty in response. The U.S. told France to go to hell and renamed French fries in congressional office buildings. Now, 14 years into a global war on terror that reliably produces more terror, France is an enthusiastic invader, plunderer, bomber, and propagator of hateful bigotry. France also sells billions of dollars of weaponry to lovely little bastions of equality and liberty like Saudi Arabia, carefully ignoring Saudi's funding of anti-Western terrorist groups. When U.S. militarism failed to prevent 9-11, I actually thought that would mean reduced militarism. When a Russian plane was recently blown up, I think I imagined for a split second that Russia would learn its lesson and stop repeating U.S. mistakes. When people were just killed in France, I didn't have any time to fantasize about France coming to its senses because a socialist president was already doing his W-on-the-rubble imitation. To all those who have seen these awful things, said Francois Hollande, I want to say that we are going to lead a war which will be pitiless. Because when terrorists are capable of committing such atrocities, they must be certain that they are facing a determined France, a united France, a France that is together and does not let itself be moved, even if today we express infinite sorrow, he said. The video doesn't look like Bush, and the French word combat doesn't necessarily mean war just because the Washington Post says it does. It can mean fight in some other sense. But what other sense exactly? I'm not sure. Prosecuting anyone responsible would, of course, make perfect sense, but a criminal justice system ought not to be pitiless. It's a war that ought to be pitiless. And it's a war that will guarantee more attacks, and it's a war that France has begun. It is the job of thinking people not to be on the side of the executioners, said Albert Camus. Please go back to thinking, France. We do love you and wish you well and are deeply sorry for U.S. influence against your better tendencies. That's from David Swanson's Non-French War Deaths Matter. David is an author, activist, journalist, radio host. He's director of worldbeyondwar.org. His books include War is a Lie. He blogs at davidswanson.org and warisacrime.org. He also hosts Talk Nation Radio. A short break, and then we'll be back with our coverage of the weekend's Democratic presidential debate in Des Moines, Iowa. I'm Brad Friedman.
Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Peace train sounding louder Tonight on the peace train Come on the peace train Yeah, come on the peace train More aspirational bumper music there than anything else, I'm afraid, this week. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Thank you for for joining us, uh, as I said uh, in the uh, in the first block, there uh, a, a difficult day, a difficult weekend. I know for a lot of people, certainly for us, uh, certainly for the candidates on Saturday, the Democratic candidates who gathered in Des Moines, Iowa, to have their debate uh, in the shadow of uh, of the carnage, frankly, from. From the night before in Paris, not easy for anyone, but uh, but we will press on and try to make sense of what happened in Saturday's primetime debate in Des Moines, Iowa, which, as I say, came just one day after the terror attacks in Paris. Uh, and they were adjusted at the last minute to emphasize the attacks and what frontrunner Hillary Clinton Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and former Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley would do in response to the threat from the Islamic State or ISIS or ISIL or Daesh, whatever you'd like to call them. Uh, but they also talked about domestic issues as well in what I think was a, uh, a substantive debate that was once again uh, served as a stark contrast, frankly, to the anger and often fact-free commentary seen in the GOP presidential debates to date this uh, this cycle. Uh, but, of course, much of it was hidden on a Saturday evening by the uh, Democratic National Committee, the DNC, which for some reason scheduled it on a Saturday night. So very few... Uh, at least fewer than the other debates uh, to date, actually saw the three top Democratic candidates square off in Des Moines. We'll try to make up for that uh, a little bit, for the uh, DNC's failure, as I see it, by filling, uh, filling you in on at least a bit of what you missed if you didn't watch the debate on Saturday, and, uh, and maybe even help you understand what happened if you did stay home and watch it on Saturday uh, just as uh, losers like myself and my guests did, uh, I think, over the weekend. Joining us once again today is our reigning and returning post-debate analysis champion who has been with us for all of our broadcast post-debate shows so far this year. I think we've had about five or six of them at this point. The great Heather Digby Parton joins us. She is often known simply as Digby from Digby's Hullabaloo. She's also a contributing writer at Salon and uh, the recipient of the 2014 Hillman Foundation Prize for Opinion and anal Analysis Journalism. Oh, Heather, welcome back to the broadcast. Thanks for having me, Brad. Uh, great to have you here. I know this is like twice in one week for you. So my apologies for that. The good news, because we had the Republican debate just a few days ago, but uh, the good news is I don't think there is any debate for like another month. I think it's like mid-December yeah. before I'll have to bother you again unless I come up with a... <laughs> 
with another excuse to do it, which maybe I will. Uh, anyway, uh, also joining us uh, is Fred Carger. This is uh, his uh, second time this year uh, with post-debate coverage, although the last one was a Republican debate. Fred Carger is formerly a Republican political consultant himself, as well as a gay rights activist and a 2012 candidate for the Republican presidential nomination. He worked on nine presidential campaigns, served as a senior consultant to the campaigns of Presidents Ronald Reagan and Gerald Ford. I remember them. After retiring as a California campaign consultant, he worked as an activist on gay rights causes, investigated the Mormon Church and the National Organization for Marriages Collusion uh, to try to uh, pass California's Prop uh, Prop 8 to re- repeal the uh, state's same-sex marriage law. Fred unsuccessfully ran for that GOP nomination in 2012, but it made him the first openly gay presidential candidate from a major political party in American history. And that story is the subject of the documentary film Fred. Oh, Fred, welcome back to the broadcast. Hey, thank you, Brad. Hello, Heather. Good to be back on. <laughs> it's it seems uh, only fair, you know, Fred, we've had uh, other than when when you were here for one of the earlier Republican debates, we've had all let me call them not Democrats, but non Republicans who have been <laughs> here to comment on the Republican debate. So it seems only fair to have a Republican here to comment and uh, bad mouth, if you wish, uh, the, all, all the Democrats as well. Well, thank you. The, you're welcome. You're welcome. Have at it. Although I, st- <laughs> I still question uh, your Republican uh, credentials. I, I suspect most of the Republican Party would. Uh, they would call you a rhino. I'm guessing. Uh, but I, I still say uh, you're a fine Republican, an old school Republican. But we'll see. Uh, as usual, our own uh, Desi Doyen joins us as well today. Hello, Desi. Hello. She, yes, I am here. She is our producer and managing editor of our Green uh, our Green News Report as well. Uh, all right, before we get started, Heather, uh, please explain your complicated relationship with Bernie Sanders so that we can otherwise be transparent uh, as we like to be here, as transparent as possible at least. Okay. Uh, I am involved with a uh, with a political pack called Blue America Pack, which we support uh, progressive candidates, mostly for the U.S. Congress, mm-hmm. sometimes for the Senate, and almost never for the presidency. Although this time uh, we did uh, raise uh, substantial money for Bernie Sanders as part of a draft movement, and we're still collecting money on his behalf for that. I personally, however, am endorsing nobody in this primary because I hate primaries, <laughs> presidential primaries, and I don't want to get involved. So. Why, why do you, why do you wait? You hate presidential primaries, and I've had you on to comment on every single debate in this primary yeah. season. Well, That's dedication. I mean, yeah. Let me let me put it to you this way: I hate Democratic presidential primaries. <laughs> I see. And I love Republican presidential primaries. I so see. It's a yeah. It's a, it's just. They're family fights, uh, which are often very vicious and very ugly. Um, so, the you know, on, when it's your own team, mm-hmm. it can be a uh, a very unpleasant undertaking. This time, not so much. I have to say, I don't really think it's that way, but it has been in the past. And uh, you know, I just assume, as a as a writer and somebody who sort of follows this stuff with some semblance of objectivity, I hope I try not to uh, not to put myself in. 
in, interject my own needs into the primary process. I appreciate that. Uh, Fred, are, are you working with uh, any of the campaigns, Republican or otherwise, or, or are you otherwise supporting any of the Democratic uh, or Republican campaigns at this point? Well, the candidate I favored uh, chose not to run a few weeks ago, Joe Biden, but I started last spring a super PAC to oppose one of the Republican candidates. It's called Truth Squad 2016, and we are opposing Mike Huckabee, which made a lot more sense in March than it does now, but <laughs> going to wait and see um, how things shake out here over the next couple months. I got you. And were you supporting Joe Biden uh, overall as uh, for president for 2016 or within the Democratic uh, nomination process? I just liked him of this whole lot that's running on both mm. sides like him the best i certainly think he looks most like a president okay but uh, i also think he'd, he'd be a good job all Do right a good job. and uh desi i know you're not working for any of the candidates at least to my knowledge <laughs> Uh, you have some explaining to do if you are, but uh, have you selected one of uh, one of the Democrats? At I this have point? selected no candidates, and at this time, I am not working for any candidate, officially or unofficially, in any in any capacity whatsoever. Wow, a bunch of people who can't make commitments. I too, <laughs> I too am supporting no candidate, and uh, and I, I generally never do. I uh, I support voters, not candidates, because I think the candidates have enough uh, supporters, but the voters don't. So that's where I am. All right, uh, viewership plummeted. Uh, for the Saturday's debate compared to the uh, to the other debates so far this season, uh, AFP said that the second pre uh, Democratic presidential debate do, drew 8.5 million viewers. According to CBS, that was about half as many as the Democrats' uh, first debate last month. That number was uh, sharply, uh, uh, th this weekend's number was sharply down from 16 million people who watched the first one uh, back in October. Although CBS notes that the latest debate was the uh, number one primetime broadcast on Saturday as far as viewer numbers go. Uh, Variety said the latest debate was the lowest rated of the six debates so far, but uh, said that it was the first one pointed, uh, first one held on a Saturday. Uh, I, I, I had previously gotten some of Heather's thoughts on this, but uh, Fred Carger, uh, what, what are your thoughts? What are the Democrats uh, thinking? You were a, a political analyst for years. What the hell are the Democrats thinking <laughs> by scheduling their uh, debates on a Saturday when obviously fewer people are going to stay home and watch them? Well, call me a conspiracy theorist, but uh, knowing the Clinton operation and the, her closeness to the DNC and her husband's, I would suggest that this was intentional. They want to keep this down. There have been columns written about that. They want to keep the viewership down and keep, uh, you know, uh, give her less of an opportunity to get attacked and, and just kind of get through the necessary debate she has to do. She, of course, would just as soon, like any frontrunner, not have any debates, but she's forced to, so they're doing six, apparently, and they're all not quite in prime time, and uh, you know, that's probably a very smart call on their part. Uh, I don't know if it was so smart. Uh, Heather, you know, after the first debate, Hillary Clinton's numbers skyrocketed. Bernie Sanders had been uh, gaining on her big time. That seems to have been stopped for now. Uh, was it smart for the DNC to, uh, to do what they're doing here? Uh, well, I don't think so. I mean, just from the perspective, I mean, I know that, you know, Fred's absolutely right. That is you know, any strategist would say that, that the, that the smart thing, if you're a front runner, you don't want to put yourself out there and potentially make some horrible error that, that, you know, messes you up. On the other hand, when you had this dynamic this time between the two parties, um, you know, the, the Republicans have been getting tremendous numbers. I mean, some of that 
due to Donald Trump, and mm-hmm. but also just there's got a lot of people in there. There's a lot of action. It's very entertaining. People are tuning in. You know, the Democrats probably need somebody to start listening to what they're saying, too. So I don't know that this really plays well. I do have to point out one thing, though, yeah. that eight million, if that's what they got, is actually about as much as the big debates between um, Obama and Hillary got yeah. back in 2008. So it's not like nobody watched, although comparatively, you know, nobody did. And it was probably mostly, you know, just political junkies <laughs> that, that tuned in. But nonetheless, it's not as horrible as it as it sounds, um, simply just by comparison to this year, which has shown tremendous interest in in you know, these presidential debates. Well, you're right. I mean, any other year, eight and a half million would have been big numbers. And, uh, you know, compared to those that that monster contest back in 2008 between Obama and and Hillary, uh, these numbers are still pretty good. But I think it speaks to uh, the fact that the country is for whatever reason. And maybe it's uh, due thanks to the carnival barker and the Republican side, as, as Martin O'Malley called him uh, in the debate over the weekend. But for whatever reason, they they seem to be interested in the political process. They seem to be interested in the candidates and uh, why any political party would, uh, you know, want to hide their candidates. And they've got good ones, frankly, as far as uh, Democratic candidates go. Why they would want to hide that from the public, I just don't understand. It seems incredibly stupid, but it wouldn't be the first time uh, for the DNC to be incredibly stupid. All right. Uh, well, let's let's get to some of these uh, since so few people did hear it. I want to get through uh, some of these clips. Uh, they started with foreign policy, of course, uh, w- which you know was a change uh, after the attacks in uh, in Paris. I'm going to uh, try to run through a few of these clips from a few different candidates. Uh, we'll sort of walk through uh, one at a time and uh, and get any thoughts that you guys have might uh, might have along the way. But I want to play a few longer clips than I usually do, uh, just because I. Uh, I don't know how many people actually heard these things uh, uh, prior to today. So let's uh, jump in. This is uh, clip number one. Des, uh, before the attack, Obama had said ISIS was not gaining in strength, according to uh, John Dickerson, the moderator. Um, And uh, he asked uh, Hillary Clinton at first here, uh, did the Obama administration and Hillary Clinton, when she worked for them, did they underestimate ISIS? Hours before the attacks, President Obama said, I don't think ISIS is gaining strength. Won't the legacy of this administration, which is which you were a part of, won't that legacy be that it underestimated the threat from ISIS? Well, John, I think that uh, we have to look at ISIS as the leading threat of an international terror network. It cannot be contained. It must be defeated. If we summon our resources, both our leadership resources and all of the tools at our disposal, not just military force, which should be used as a last resort, but our diplomacy, our development aid, law enforcement, we will support those who take the fight to ISIS so that we can be supportive. But this cannot be an American fight, although American leadership is essential. But uh, Secretary Clinton, the question was about Where was ISIS underestimated? You missed it in the past. Well, John, look, I think that what happened when we abided by the agreement that George W. Bush uh, made with the Iraqis to leave uh, by 2011 is that an Iraqi army was left that had been trained and that was prepared to defend Iraq. Unfortunately, Nouri al-Maliki, the prime minister, set about decimating it. And then with the revolution against Assad, and I did early on say we needed to try to 
find a way to train and equip moderates very early so that we would have a better idea of how to deal with Assad, because I thought there would be uh, extremist groups filling the vacuum. So, yes, this has developed. I think that there are many other reasons why it has, in addition uh, to what happened in the region, but I don't think that the United States uh, has the bulk of the responsibility. I really put that on Assad and on the Iraqis and on the region itself. That was Hillary Clinton on Saturday. Heather Digby-Parton, uh, this is obviously going to be a big issue, at least for a while, if these attacks continue. Uh, does noting that uh, so much of what's going on comes out of the Iraq war, comes out of what the Bush administration did, uh, will that work for uh, Hillary Clinton or are they going to uh, or, or will the effort to tie her to the rise of ISIS uh, work, you think? I don't know if it'll work. I don't know if, if it will work that, you know, she she ties it to, you know, the Bush administration. I mean, I, I don't know mm-hmm. um, whether or not either of those approaches really are adequate. I mean, I, I think she handled the question fine, uh, you know, considering her position there. I think she uh, showed a, uh, and under, you know, obviously she's, you know, she was, she was Secretary of State. I mean, she, and she'd been a senator on the Armed Services Committee prior to that. So, you know, she's, she's very, very well versed in this and probably more so than, than most of the Republican rivals, save a couple, uh, who, you know, uh, seem to be somewhat fluent in this subject. But, uh, you know, on a political bit level, I think this is, this is going to be very interesting because I think that the Republicans have wanted for some time to shift to, to national security yeah. if they could because, uh, you know, that's, that's traditionally an advantageous playing field. And I think they felt that Clinton had, you know, this is partially what the Benghazi thing is about, right? That she was vulnerable. Uh, on this uh, subject of terrorism. So I think, it, you know, she's going to have to be very, uh, you know, she's going to have to handle this very deftly. Um, it's not easy. The, the president, unfortunately, you know, said the words prior to this attack that we had ISIS contained. Now, specifically, he was referring to, con- you know, the, the actual territory that they had seized in the, in the region, not contained as a global terrorist, you know, organization. Mm-hmm. But in this particular way, but because he said those words, of course, that's going to be a very tough thing. And she's going to, you know, be put in a very tough position in terms of how she uh, separates herself from him, but also not too much because, you know, this is, you, you, can, you can't only go so far with that. And uh, she kind of did it in that, in that comment in which she said, we can't be contained, they must be defeated. Well, you know, that's a typical candidate kind of thing to say. Um, but it was something that was definitely sort of drawing a line between her and President Obama. So, let, let yeah, me anyway. let me ask. Uh, well, I, I want to get uh, Fred Carger's uh, thoughts on this and what he would do with that as a uh, Republican uh, political consultant. But before I get that, let me let me uh, let me play uh, Martin O'Malley. Uh, his response uh, to the question about, you know, if if, if U.S. doesn't lead, then who leads? Uh, this has been a, a, a criticism from the Republicans that the U.S. isn't leading on this issue. Let me play Martin O'Malley's uh, thoughts here, and then, Fred, I'll get your thoughts on uh, on both of them. Okay, Governor O'Malley, would you critique the administration's response to ISIS? If the United States doesn't lead, who leads? I would disagree with, with Secretary Clinton respectfully on this score. Uh, this actually is America's fight. It cannot solely be America's fight. 
America is best when we work in collaboration with our allies. America is best when we are actually standing up to evil in this world. And ISIS, make no mistake about it, is an evil in this world. And we do have a role in this, not solely ours, but we must work collaboratively with other nations. The great failing of these last 10 or 15 years, John, has been our failing of human intelligence on the ground. We took out the safe haven in Afghanistan, but now there is undoubtedly a larger safe haven, and we must rise to this occasion in collaboration and with alliances to confront it and invest in the future much better human intelligence so we know what the next steps are. That was uh, Governor uh, Martin O'Malley speaking on Saturday, and we'll get to Bernie Sanders' thoughts on this uh, momentarily. But Fred Carger, as a former uh, Republican consultant, uh, what would you do uh, with with the commentary there from from Hillary and or Martin O'Malley? Uh, And uh, and and do you think it will be effective this year? Well, we're living in a very different and dangerous world. And certainly the Obama slash Clinton first four years uh, is responsible for some of this turmoil, and I contend that they did pull out too early um, from Iraq, and I was uh, strongly in favor of, of that and of uh, removing ourselves from Afghanistan, but we, we made a lousy deal, and we should not have gone um, out the way we did. And so she, she's responsible, and uh, to some extent, and of course her record is as Secretary of State needs to be examined. And I would also argue that she did very little other than travel as Secretary of State because she was so cautious, uh, presumably because she had this presidential campaign in mind. Uh, As far as Martin O'Malley's comments, I tend to agree more with those. We need to be very vigilant, but we need to be very cautious before we put any boots on the ground again in the Middle East. It's a dangerous situation. We have many allies, particularly Middle East allies, that are really under uh, even more threat, as you mentioned, the the bombing in Lebanon. I mean, these become so routine, 43 people killed. And I tweeted about that, how how fortunate we are to live in this country the day before the Paris attack. It's just, it's it's so frightening out there. We've been very fortunate here, but um, we need to uh, assemble, as as George H.W. Bush did, I'm just reading his new book, a great coalition to take on ISIS because they are the new threat, and we're going to have some unusual allies in that fight, maybe even Assad and, and others. But, um, you know, it, it, we have a common enemy now, so we need to destroy that enemy because they are going to. And when you think what they've done just in the last year from, from uh, just a number of beheadings to uh, terrorizing an entire city and country well but fred they're going to be going um to this country next let 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 me let me press you on this uh two points one you say that uh, we pulled out too early but of course that was george w bush's deal we would have had to uh uh maliki the the uh, prime minister of iraq at the time did not want to change that deal despite the fact that obama did want to stay uh, it, h- how is that fair to blame him for leaving too early when Iraq did not want us there? And, and two, what would be different, what would you uh, suggest would be different than what Obama has already done as far as leading a coalition? Because they're bombing the crap out of uh, one country after another in the Middle East uh, in, in response to ISIS right now. Well, uh, I, I think that that's just the common blame that Bush had this deal. When a new administration comes in, uh, it was not a, a, a anything signed in blood, then they have that opportunity to renegotiate. And I contended when I ran that Obama 
was the world's worst negotiator. He, he put his cards on the table always in dealing with Israel and the Palestinians. He never knew how to negotiate. And, and when he pulled out of Iraq, he, he fell into that category. And he was poorly served by his advisors, and he should have negotiated a much better deal. They just ran us out of this country, which we were responsible for for overthrowing and um, and creating this new government. So I still contend that he, he made a lousy deal, and if we did have some kind of presence there, this whole ISIS threat might be uh, different, but who knows. So I think we need to look forward from here and not necessarily look back and figure out a way to assemble a great coalition, as we did with our allies in World War II, to take out this new threat, because if they get any kind of nuclear armament, we are really in serious trouble. Uh, Heather, I'll, I'll leave that up to you. Uh, would you like to respond to, to that? Just, just briefly, I'll just point out that, you know, the idea of forming the, the Great Coalition, I, I have no reason to believe that, that the administration isn't uh, trying to do that. But what I see is the right wing of the Republican Party absolutely having fits anytime he even discusses the idea of working with Iran, which would be a logical and very important ally in a fight against ISIS, since they are on the opposite side of ISIS, working with Vladimir Putin, working with Assad. These are all uh, areas, and in fact, over the weekend, uh, when when uh, Obama was at the G20, there's a picture that came out of him speaking very closely with, with Putin and the two translators there, and they were deep in conversation. And it was one tweet after another from from various, uh, you know, conservatives absolutely appalled and say this is the most frightening thing I've ever seen. So, you know, this is difficult. It's not just difficult in trying to put that coalition together because the various strands of Middle Eastern loyalties, religious um, affiliations, various nationalist, um, uh, nationalist concerns, all of that combined with our own domestic issues that go into that. I just, uh, it's not that I disagree with Fred. I think he's absolutely right. I just think it's easier said than done. I mean, I think people underestimate the complexity of that. And as a result, they kind of look at Obama and say, well, why can't he do it? Well, you know, it's just not. It's not that easy, and it would certainly be a lot easier if the Republicans in Congress would be a little bit more cooperative and stop, you know, being quite as uh, obstructionist uh, toward anything Obama tries to do. Well, I think. and and I would uh, agree with Fred on on one level that yes, and I've I've written about this since at least 2007. Uh, Barack Obama has been a terrible negotiator uh, from the beginning. He's gotten a little bit better, but he's been a terrible negotiator. That said, you know, I don't know how you uh force a country to keep uh tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of troops in their country if they don't want you there if they're not going to give immunity to your troops and, and so forth but i think that this entire issue the the attacks in paris would seem to redound in this race at this point to the benefit of republicans if only because you know, they'd much rather talk about foreign policy issues, uh, you know, in their fear-based fashion. Uh, and, you know, scaring soccer moms is, is one way that Republicans are able to reach out to women. But I, I think they've largely stayed away from it, it seems, because eventually you get to where uh, you were, Fred, where, you, where you're talking about troops on the ground, hundreds of thousands of troops on the ground, American uh, lives at risk. And I don't even know that the Republicans want to go there and remind everybody about what happened uh, during the George W. Bush administration and that boots on the ground foreign policy. So, I, I mean, 
Does this end well for Republicans if they continue down this same line? Well, some certainly do. Talk to Lindsey Graham or John McCain, and we've got some real aggressive people um, in elective office who would like to troops on the ground. Yeah, and, uh, but they're being rejected. I mean, obviously, McCain was already rejected, but Lindsey Graham is being rejected by the electorate. They don't want that uh, heavy, muscular, boots-on-the-ground foreign policy, it seems. Well, that's not why he's re- being rejected. Um, he's uh, other reasons, but he has a very strong voice in the U.S. Senate. The Republicans hold the majority, as does John McCain. Uh, and they're loggerheads with, with the president over that. But we do need to get more aggressive, and um, we're certainly seeing what France did the day, two days after they were attacked. They went right in and started taking out, I'm sure with our assistance from our intelligence, taking out ISIS' um, main command. And that's what we need to do. We, we can't pussyfoot around. This organization, which has grown so strong in, in so long, and, and they're very smart. You know, As a public relations guy, I looked at what they did with all these horrific things that got them all this national attention. Um, they were smart, and they recruited off of those uh, beheadings and the fire, you know, burning people alive and those type of horrific, inhumane activities they did. It's good for their recruiting. So they're smart. They're savvy. They know how to use the Internet. They know how to use PR and, and get things done. And, and the, the fact that just, in, as I say, in a year to do a stage, a, an attack like they did in Paris, um, that was, it, you know, went so well as far as they're concerned and did so much damage and just caused this entire uproar in the whole world um, that we, we really need to contain them very quickly. Let me get, uh, very quickly, let me get Bernie Sanders in because we got to get to a break, but I want to get uh, some of Bernie Sanders' thoughts on uh, all of this and uh, and and what he, he sees as, uh, well, Hillary's culpability in this with her vote in uh, in favor of the Iraq war. Well, let me have one area of disagreement with the secretary. I think she said something like, the bulk of the responsibility is not ours. Well, in fact, I would argue that the disastrous invasion of Iraq, something that I strongly opposed, has unraveled the region completely and led to the rise of al-Qaeda and to uh, ISIS. Senator Sanders, when you say the disastrous vote, on Iraq. Uh, let's just be clear about what you're saying. Are you making a direct link between her vote for that war and what's happening now for ISIS, just so everybody well, can I don't be clear think at home? Any, I don't think any sensible person would disagree that the invasion of Iraq led to the massive level of instability we are seeing right now. I think right. that was one of the worst foreign policy blunders in the modern history of the United States. I think it's important we put this in historic context. The United States has unfortunately been victimized by terrorism going back decades. Uh, In the 1980s, it was in Beirut, Lebanon under President Reagan's administration. We also had attacks on two of our embassies in uh, Tanzania and Kenya uh, when my husband was president. And then, of course, 9-11 happened, which happened before there was an invasion of Iraq. I have said the invasion of Iraq was a mistake, but I think if we're ever going to really tackle the problems posed by jihadi extreme terrorism, we need to understand it and realize that it has uh, antecedents to what happened in Iraq, and we have to continue to be vigilant about it. Uh, Heather uh, Digby-Parton, it seems like Hillary's saying that, oh, don't blame me, it wasn't the Iraq uh, war, that this would have happened anyway. Uh, does that work? And does Sanders, uh, you know, calling her out for that, does that work on the uh, on the Democratic side in this battle just between uh, Hillary Clinton and, and Bernie Sanders at this point? 
Well, it works and it doesn't work. Um, you know, the, it works in the sense that ISIS would not exist without the uh, invasion of Iraq. That That is absolutely clear. That's historically <laughs> verified that ISIS grew out of mm-hmm. the Iraq War. Uh, and, in fact, some of its main thinking came out of the prison camps that we had in Iraq, and they were, you know, uh, among the, some of these radicalized um, uh, Iraqis that were but, in there. But, we, um, but, but we've already established that that doesn't seem to uh, make much of a difference to Republican voters. Does it make a difference amongst the uh, Democratic well, electorate? I don't know, because, I, you know, she's also right in the sense that um, 9-11 happened before the invasion of Iraq, and that was a pretty big terrorist attack, and it was Islamic, you know, uh, what's the word that we're supposed to use that Republicans demand we use? Radical Islamism, is that it? Is that it, Fred? Uh, Is that what we're supposed to use? I I forget. Anyway, (laughs) we know that that existed. Islamic Islamic terrorists, okay. I'm happy to use whatever term the Republicans (laughs) force me to use. I'm I'm absolutely fine with that. Um, But but the, um, it happened before Iraq, so it's not as if this, you know, this this concept of uh, Islamic terrorism, uh, you know, was invented by the Iraq invasion. Um, the the vote for, to go into Iraq clearly is, you know, one of the it's the reason she lost the last election. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and right. you know, I think that plenty of Democrats understand what a what a horrifically um, bad judgment she showed in voting for the invasion of Iraq. But in this particular case, when you're talking about, you know, Islamic terrorism and you're talking, I mean, you know, we can go back to the 80s and Reagan and the Afghan, Afghan war. You know, this is, there's, there's a long, long, long trail of American uh, responsibility and, um, and, you know, involvement in the creation of that. Which, by the way, is something we ought to be thinking about before we start talking about, you know, invading more countries and doing and being involved some more, I think, in the Middle East, because it really has not worked out well for us uh, all the way along. This goes back a very long way. In that sense, she's, she's right. I don't know that Democratic audiences, people, voters are going to uh, see that, but I don't think that she's wrong in pointing that out. It's, it's not entirely an Iraq-centered issue. And, and the other thing, by the way, that hasn't worked out is bombing the crap out of people. I, you know, Fred nope. mentioned that uh, France, uh, you know, had a huge uh, uh, bombing campaign over the weekend. They did. Uh, I guess that continues the, what are we on, 10 or 15 years now of absolutely bombing the crap out of the entire country in Iraq and uh, now more so in, in Syria and elsewhere. And it only seems to make the bad guys grow stronger rather than uh, what so many Republicans uh, seem to suggest that, oh, if we only bombed them enough, they would go away. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll let you guys, I'll let Fred have a, a response to that if he wants after this break. i got to get to a quick break. I'll also give uh, Fred a chance to, uh, to take care of that dog in the meantime. We're going to uh, take care. That was Heather's dog. Oh, that was Heather's dog. It's not my dog. <laughs> Oh, there's a wild dog somewhere. Well, we're here. All right. Well, we'll the other person. I'll check. Maybe it's my dog, and I don't even have one. I'll check. Well, let's take a quick break, and we'll be back uh, with uh, Heather Digby-Parton and Fred Carger and Desi Doyen and myself here on the broadcast. Our coverage of the Democratic debate over the weekend in Des Moines, Iowa, will continue. Stay tuned. <laughs> Well, John, I come from uh, the 60s, a long time ago. 
house is a very, very, very fine house with two cats in the yard. Life used to be so hard. Now everything is easy because of you. Yep. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Our coverage of the weekend Democratic debate in Des Moines, Iowa with uh, Salon's Heather Digby Parton and former 2012 Republican uh, presidential candidate Fred Carger is here, a former uh, Republican uh, uh, operative. Is that right? Can we call you an operative? I love being called an operative. All right, there you go. (laughs) Uh, Okay, I want to get to uh, some of the uh, social issues here uh, very quickly, if we can. Uh, This line I thought was fantastic. Desi doing clip number uh, six as they were talking about... um, uh, how, how Bernie will uh, pay for all the things that he has uh, that he has promised, like uh, uh, free pu- uh, uh, public uh, college education and so forth. How high would he be willing to to raise taxes? You've said that to do some of these things, you'll impose a tax on top earners. How high would their rate go in the Sanders administration? So we pay for this by due demanding that the wealthiest people and the largest corporation have gotten away with murder for years, stop paying their fair share. Well, let's get specific. How high would you go? You've said before you'd go above 50 percent. How high? We haven't come up with an exact number yet, but it will not be as high as the number under Dwight D. Eisenhower, which was 90 percent. But it will be. <laughs> I'm not that much of a socialist so. compared to Eisenhower. <laughs> That was a pretty great line, I thought. Uh, Fred Carger, as uh, maybe an Eisenhower Republican yourself, I don't know. Uh, it, it d- does does that work? And uh, are, are Republicans? Because I've I've heard this uh, go back and forth. Are Republic? Would they would who would they prefer to see get the nomination nomination here? Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton? Really, who would they prefer to see? Your friends in the Republican Party. That's uh, a tough one. I think they're both very vulnerable. Uh, Hillary, of course, it's going to be a roller coaster ride for her. She was inevitable eight years ago and looking a little more inevitable a week ago, and now that's changing a little bit. So I think either one, and of course, we have a pretty weak field in the Republican side, and it's going to, you know, it's kind of, you're going to have to hold our nose and vote for somebody next November, but uh, we just don't know whom yet. Uh, And uh, Heather, your thoughts on that same question? Oh, I think they'd much rather run against. Bernie Sanders, um, not because they, you know, Hillary is such a strong candidate, but just because he is, you know, I mean, he's literally claimed the socialist label, and I just think that that that's just uh, too juicy of a of a target for for the Republican Party. I think they'd rather run against him, and I don't know that they'd do any better against him than they do against Clinton. I mean, they both have their uh, their good and their they're bad sides, but uh, that, that's my feeling. I mean, that, the fact that they push him so hard tells me that they'd really like to run, at least on my Twitter feed, yeah. um, tells me that they'd really like to run against I, Bernie I, if they could. I, I, yeah, I know. I, I think that's a, the old uh, don't throw me in the briar patch thing. I think they know how to run against Hillary Clinton. I think they have no clue 
how to actually run against Bernie Sanders and what effect he will have. So I'm not sure if I if I buy that faint that uh, Republicans offer. Oh, please, please give us the socialist Bernie Sanders. Uh, but l- let's go into uh, this clip number nine, uh, Desi. Uh, The question about Hillary Clinton's support from Wall Street, huge support uh, from Wall Street and uh, Bernie Sanders, who who does not take uh, uh, money, at least a super PAC money like that. Why over her political career has Wall Street been a major, the major uh, campaign contributor to Hillary Clinton? Now, maybe they're dumb and they don't know what they're going to get, but I don't think so. It ain't complicated. You got six financial institutions today that have assets of 56% equivalent to 56% of the GDP in America. They issue two-thirds of the credit cards and one-third of the mortgages. If Teddy Roosevelt, a good Republican, were alive today, you know what he'd say? Break them up. I will break up these banks, support community banks and credit unions. Credit unions, that's the future of banking in America. You said they know what they're going to get. What are they going to get? Well, why do they make millions of dollars of campaign contributions? They expect to get something. Everybody knows that. Uh, before I ask for uh, your your thoughts, uh, Heather and uh, Fred, let me play Hillary's response. Her reason why it is that uh, Wall Street is giving her so much money, it is because they are so thankful that she helped them out, I guess, after 9-11. He has basically used his answer to impugn my integrity. Let's be no, frank here. Oh, wait a minute, Senator. You know... Not only do I have hundreds of thousands of donors, most of them small, and I'm very proud that for the first time, a majority of my donors are women, 60%. I represented New York, and I represented New York on 9-11. When we were attacked, where were we attacked? We were attacked in downtown Manhattan, where Wall Street is. I did spend a whole lot of time and effort helping them rebuild. That was good for New York, it was good for the economy, and it was a way to rebuke the terrorists who had attacked our country. So, you know, it's fine for you to say what you're going to say, but I look very carefully at your proposal. Reinstating Glass-Steagall is a part of what very well could help, but it is nowhere near enough. My proposal is tougher more effective and more comprehensive because I go after all of Wall Street, not just the big banks. John, okay, so there you go. Uh, who, which of you two would like to have it that first? The first. All right, go get it. <laughs> get it out of the way. Go get him. All right. Um, you know, first of all, Sanders, you know, he's totally right. <laughs> he's completely right. Of course, Clinton is, you know, accepting... Um, you know, donations from Wall Street, they expect something in return. And the fact that she said that thing about 9-11, it was just, uh, I mean, it was it was just obnoxious. I mean, let's just face it. That's just an obnoxiously weird thing for her to say. I, I, don't, I can't even imagine that she believes it, but whatever. You know, the idea of that is absurd. Um, it, the, she has, throughout her career, been associated, you know, she was part of the DLC. She goes all the way back into this into this time when the Democrats decided that they needed to become, you know, quote market friendly, and they needed to, uh, you know, access uh, the 
the you know the big money on mm-hmm. Wall Street, and, and and it is true she has to get money from somewhere. I mean that's absolutely a fact. The Republicans are awash in money; they are drowning in money. It's a gusher of money. So the Democrats do have to get their money from somewhere. But the idea that she did it, you know, that the reason they're giving it to her is because she was I don't know what down at down at the Red Cross, you know, giving blood or something. I don't even know what it was she's talking about was ridiculous and and it was really her the low point for her in the in the debate and it's going to cost her big because that is a, a ridiculous thing to say and if the democrats I'm sure Bernie Sanders is going to never going to let her forget it mm. most progressives are never going to let her forget it and I'm sure the republicans aren't going to let her forget it so. well she uh Fred your thought she was I mean playing the 911 card that was uh, really a republican move it seemed to me uh just you know citing 911 hey don't beat me up because 9-11. Your thoughts, uh, Fred Carter? I saw it as, from a consultant's point of view, I'm sure in her rehearsals for these debates, they've always uh, advised her to play the woman card and the 9-11 card. Things start to go south, just throw those in. Well, she used some poor judgment, I think, in playing both in this instance to try and divert the attention. Don't forget, as Bill Clinton's presidency, as we look back on it, he had a lot of Wall Streeters uh, in in key posts at mm-hmm. uh, Treasury and everywhere else. So they have a very cozy relationship, and, and they're the masters at fundraising. We've certainly seen that with a foundation for their campaigns. Uh, she's much more successful than the Republicans running, with the exception well, of uh, Jeb Bush uh, initially, but now she's surpassed everybody. So well, Fred, though, having that— trouble raising money. That, uh, that was a different time, it seems to me, when Bill Clinton had all of the, the, you know, the Wall Streeters in the cabinet. Uh, you know, isn't the American public, uh, frankly, uh, both the Democratic and the Republican side, uh, kind of sick of that, kind of sick of the control that Wall Street has? Or is it still, you know, there's, there's a few people on the margins of each party who are bothered by it, but by and large, the Republic, uh, the, uh, sorry, the, the public just doesn't care? Look at the support she's getting. That's uh, mostly from Democratic mm-hmm. financial types from Wall Street and all over the country. So, no, it's a kind of like it's not Hollywood where it's one party or the other. It's uh, it's pretty well diverse, and you have people on, on both sides. The one thing I like about the, the Wall Streeters and the financial community, when they are Republicans, they tend to be very much more moderate and less concerned with the social issues. So mm. they tend to support the more moderate sensible Republican candidates. So as far as that goes, I think I think that's a good thing. But everybody gets in this business. It's a $2,700 maximum to a campaign you can give in a primary, and then they don't take matching funds again for the general. So we're not talking about creating a huge amount of influence. It's the way the system works. The problems I have are with these super PACs and uh, some of the hidden money that we are are seeing with the 527s and mm-hmm. some of the other loopholes that have been set up, and a, a very weak and cowardly Federal Election Commission, which is, of course, divided right down the middle, three to three, and the commissioners, so they don't do anything, which is the way the federal government likes it. But yeah. we need to, we need transparency in, in um, campaign reporting and politics, and we need to crack down on on a lot of the abuse that's happening right now. And I agree with you, of course, about the FEC. I, I think uh, I put more weight on the money that, uh, yes, there are some campaign limits on what they can give to her campaign directly, but that money going to her super PACs, uh, she knows where that money is coming from, and it's and it's Wall Street. Uh, we have about 30 seconds each for you here. Uh, 
Heather, uh, do, do you agree? Was uh, was this a substantive debate? And uh, finally, uh, will it have moved the needle in one direction or another? Um, I don't think it moved the needle. I think, judging from the snap polls that came out afterwards, it, it appears to have just sort of, it's a status quo, uh, you know, nothing particularly changed it. I do think, and I, and I just think it's important to point this out, that, you know, everybody was so impressed with John Dickerson that he ran this wonderful debate, mm-hmm. that the, he gave these great questions, and it was just a terrific, and on the entire press corps was patting themselves on the back for what a wonderful, wonderful job he did. And nobody pointed out that part of the reason why that debate went well, and it was substantive, was because none of the candidates stood there and had a temper tantrum <laughs> over being uh, over having hard questions posed to them. So I would just say that, you know, let's give the candidates a little bit of uh, credit here, for acting like adults and you know taking the questions and they were tough and they weren't they were substantive and they took them and they didn't you know whine and cry about it so Fred uh, good points all uh, Fred uh, your your thoughts will it move the needle and then and, and was it a worthwhile debate no I think all debates are worthwhile but um, I think people are really starting to finalize their choices and we're uh, not seeing a lot of vacillation on the Democratic side the Republican side is wide open. What I'm fearful of is the Donald Trump factor and that he and some of his fellow Republicans have really gone after the media for their gotcha questions, as they call them. Well, that's what debates are for. So if you're going to just have softball questions at debates, um, and, and I think that even the folks at CBS were a little intimidated, they don't want to lose these because, as you pointed out early in the broadcast, Brad, mm-hmm. these are raiding bonanzas, yeah. particularly the Republican side. So now you've got the media backing away from their aggressive questioning of the candidates because they're afraid that some of these candidates might just tell them to take a hike and they won't come back on their debates, and all it takes is one for these things to crumble. So that's one of the fears I have moving forward, and I just hope that the press will will hang tough and and ask those type of tough questions that we want to see and and, and want to test the candidates on. And I will agree with you there. Uh, My thanks. And and Desi Doyen, I will get your thoughts uh, in in our upcoming show because we didn't even get to the the issue of the the point that they didn't mention, they didn't ask about climate change. They didn't ask about climate change. They didn't ask about energy policy. Uh, They didn't ask about campaign finance reform, which is closely tied to all of these very important issues. Which seems an oversight. We'll pick that up in our next thrilling episode, uh, although it may be because of the last-minute adjustment due, due to Paris and so forth, but but there's a lot to talk about there. So, uh, Des, since you'll be around, we'll talk to you uh, about that in upcoming broadcasts. I want to I want to uh, thank uh, Desi Doyen, our producer, and our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and of course, uh, my thanks to my guest today, Heather Digby-Parton, who you can and should follow on the Twitters at digby 56 and uh, Fred Carger, who you can and should follow uh, on uh, on the Twitters as well, at Fred Carger. And I believe also FredCarger.com. Is that right, Fred? Either one. But I could use some Twitter, Twitter followers. So There you go. <laughs> Fred Carger at Twitter. There you or go. That's it. Uh, perfect. Uh, thank you, Fred. Always great to talk to you, sir. And uh, my thanks to you as well, Heather Digby-Parton. Check out her work as ever at Salon and at digbysblog.blogspot.com. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks if, very much. You bet. If you missed any portion of our program today, download it at bradblog.com. Follow us on the Twitters at TheBradBlog. And, of course, drop us email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. All right. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.